Welcome back, listeners, to Changing Reels, a proud part of the Modern Superior Podcast Network. And here at Changing Reels, we aim to change the conversation about diversity in front of and behind the camera, one reel at a time. I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And here at Changing Reels, the way we like to go about that diversification conversation is by looking at a pair of short films selected by Courtney and myself, and then a feature length, why we think they should be part of the larger pop culture discussion, and what they mean to us. If you want to support Changing Reels, uh, the first step uh, would be my Patreon for Can't Stop the Movies. I handle the production work, and I can also be blamed for the production work, uh, but it helps keep my household fed, uh, including myself, my wife, and our four cats, and a roof over our heads, so any patronage there would be welcome. It already gets you unlocked to a bunch of goodies, including extra podcasts on Twin Peaks The Return and the video game Hellblade Senwa's Sacrifice. You can also show some love to the Modern Superior Podcast Network. They are just about hitting their stretch goals for additional content, so make sure you give them a look as well. Now today is going to be a special episode. We have another wonderful guest joining us, Miss Carolyn Morissette. So Carolyn, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm great. I'm great. So I'm pretty happy to be here. Just came fresh off of final meeting for the Blood in the Snow, our final selection for the film festival that's happening uh, November the 23rd to the 26th this year. So very excited about that. Blood in the Snow, that's a hell of a title. So what, I know. <laughs> so what kind of films are you all focusing on there? We focus on Canadian uh, genre films, any kind of uh, horror or genre sci-fi, Canadian made or Canadian produced or with a Canadian director. We like to showcase Canadian content, basically. It's a few days of fun-filled films and uh, schmoozing, lots of schmoozing, so uh, <laughs> quite excited. <laughs> I like to tease Courtney a lot because uh, I only just went to my first proper film festival recently. There was this Afrofuturism festival in Atlanta, which I'll probably write about on Can't Stop the Movies soon. But uh, Courtney's web of contacts, it's a teasing with a hint of honesty because I'm, I'm still impressed at the stuff he's able to pull out. Yeah, I don't know if it's really a web of contacts, but I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, you brought us Ryan, and now you brought us Carolyn. So, I mean, you know, don't don't sell yourself short, man. Well, I think it's just <laughs> the benefit of living in a city that's just film-obsessed. <laughs> Well, speaking of films, as I mentioned earlier, we like to kick off with two short films, and then we're going to be tying those in with our discussion in the feature link today, Train to Busan. So, Courtney, why don't you tell us a bit about your pick? My pick is a short film by Ryan Coonan, and it's called Waterborne. And I could go into the deep environmental aspect to, of the film, or I could talk about how this film offers an interesting slant to the whole monster movie genre. But I'm just going to say this film has a zombie kangaroo. If that's not <laughs> enough to get you to see this film, then there's no hope for you. It's basically a film about this uh, guy, I guess, working for an environmental company who goes to a particular region, I guess, in the outback, to test the water supply. And on his way back, he encounters a kangaroo in the middle of the road and all hell breaks loose. And that's pretty much the film. It's a brief 10 minutes, but it's a lot of fun. I thought it fit perfectly with the feature film, not just because of the zombie theme, but also it's a really kind of enjoyable time. And 
I was thinking if I was going to program a film festival or something I was showing our feature film, then I would love to play this one just before it, just to get the crowd hyped up. I thought it was pretty awesome, actually. And it made me think of a couple of things. First of all, that I'm so I'm a vegetarian and I love all animals. I'll just tell you right now. But for some reason, I do not like kangaroos. I think they're weird looking. They look mean. And I know that in Australia, they're considered like vermin because there's so many there. I don't condone killing them or eating them or anything, but they look like they mean business. So I think it was perfect to make a kangaroo kind of a zombie kangaroo because <laughs> they've got the strength. They've got the look. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with Courtney with the environmental part of it, but I thought it was kind of hysterical. And it made me think of another um, a New Zealand film called Black Sheep. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I but think I did see that one yeah, a few years back. Pretty ridiculous. It's about basically zombie sheep, genetically modified sheep that attack humans. And it's basically along the same lines of that. So I thought it was pretty hysterical. And I liked that it looked like it was an actual animatronic puppet that they had. There were a ton of really awesome touches here. As soon as you open up the film and you've got your traditional foreboding old man basically saying, honestly, I forget the exact dialogue, but it's more or less, don't go there. You shouldn't go there from here. When you finally do get to the zombie kangaroo attack, and yeah, Courtney, that really should just be the calling card, period. If a kangaroo zombie, the words themselves don't do it for you, then, you know, it's cool. Everyone's got their own thing, but we'll move on. But the the, the, the zombie, and I'm going to, I have to control myself now because I'm going to keep laughing every time I say zombie kangaroo. <laughs> um, but the, it was more fun than any kind of scare thing. And, and that's perfectly fine, like creature features. They're showcases for great special effects. Sometimes there's some horror involved, but here it worked just splendidly as a comedy. And the slapstick element of it with the zombie kangaroo just banging himself against it in the hopes of trying to get to the environmental protection guy. It actually reminded me a lot of Peter Jackson's really early movies and Dead Alive especially, because the zombie kangaroo... And I didn't laugh for once, yes. But the zombie kangaroo very much looks like either a stop-motion kind of pastiche, or it really was a puppet, because its movements were so jarring and stilted that I was just marveling at it for fun's sake, like the ridiculous scenario. But then also the crap behind it, the, just this weird-looking thing to begin with, jilting around and sketchily moving around. And it's a much more fun version of the kind of movement that we'll be seeing when we get to Train to Busan. So uh, on a stylistic front, there's a nice parallel there. Overall, it was, it was just the right amount of silly special effects. And to bring up the environmental angle, don't drink the water, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if that's one thing you could take away is do not drink the water and apparently kangaroos tend to hunt in packs like raptors which i never yeah. considered until watching this film well i enjoyed that final shot and i won't give it away but in the distance i really enjoyed that that was probably my favorite my favorite part of the movie <laughs> were you thinking oh you know maybe it was just one random kangaroo but maybe not <laughs> Building on what you were saying about them kind of being seen as a vermin, you know, much like cockroaches, if you see one, there's plenty more somewhere 
out of sight. Also, <laughs> just thinking of the zombie kangaroo even more, I don't know if either of you have seen the photograph of the buff-as-hell kangaroo. I love this as is, but I can't help but let my mind wander to what this scenario would be like if it was that buff-as-hell, biceps-built-for-days <laughs> kangaroo able to just punch his way in. We probably would have lost some of the funny bits, the, I guess the funny repetition, but yeah, your, uh, your fear of kangaroos isn't too far off from what the reality might be. <laughs> Yeah, that's one thing you can never uh, underestimate them. And even think of like a, a, a buff kangaroo. I'm sh- I'm sure he was probably in the background somewhere as like the ringleader of, of all this. <laughs> maybe, maybe he was the one that drank the most polluted water and evolved at a at a faster rate. But I think if we can talk about fear and paranoia, I, I think we should segue to your film, which is entitled Paranoia, because it's a very interesting one, and I, I want to know why you chose that one. Much like with my previous short film selection, since I don't make it out to festivals very much, I tend to go to short of the week, and I will just type in keywords relating to what ever it is that we're watching. This is a deep dive into my searching process. I typed in train and I just started scrolling through. And what immediately grabbed me about paranoia was the animation style. I'm a sucker for that kind of rotoscope look. We talked about it uh, actually in the, the Ryan episode too with when she replaced Camille and, and the swimming there. What really struck me with paranoia First of all, the contrast between the semi-realistic animation and then the backgrounds themselves, which looked more 3D modeled than based on anything in reality, that works to its advantage. Like, there's a hostility to the environment even before we get started, that there are these people occupying this space, but the space may not necessarily be for people. It's not really comforting to them. And as things go on, and the man with the newspaper, as his paranoia grows, and you know, maybe the person is a terrorist, maybe he has a bomb, maybe he doesn't, it just played very nicely on our general fear of strangers you know it doesn't matter if they look like us or if they don't and of course there are plenty of films and plenty of commentary on for folks who don't look like any one of us talking here today that general frustration of feeling someone's weight in a space that you think is your own outside yourself like not even in the seat next to you but just kind of in the general atmosphere there's just a heavy weight to begin with and then of course the rest of the events happen or don't happen but that sense of space and weight when the stranger comes in is something that really fascinated me about this I really loved this one and I liked kind of encapsulated a bunch of things for me like what is real what's a real threat I thought the newspaper itself was quite telling because it made me think of fake news, of being under a barrage of this is happening, that's happening, this is blown up, someone else has been shot. And it adds to that as the paranoia and pitting us against each other. So it just was a perfect mix of paranoia, outside influences, and then your inner intuition with a lot of horror or like suspense 
the characters, they're battling with their intuition. So they're wondering, well, is it me or is this actually happening? And I could see that was the main character's turmoil was, am I crazy or is this guy going to blow the train up? So I really enjoyed that whole aspect of paranoia and the lack of confidence within yourself. And what you were mentioning as well, like having another person in your space and not being sure of them. So I thought it was really well done within that short amount of time. Yeah, I quite enjoyed this. And uh, one thing I will say, though, to get back to your point about Camille in the last episode, I guess when we were talking about Creed with Ryan, the director of that short film or one of the directors because I think it was like three of them Nathan Otano reached out to us and he he liked what we had to say about the show but he, he had mentioned that it wasn't rotoscoped so I'm not sure how they pulled off the visuals on that but that's just a another side note for another great animated film this one in particular I found interesting for several reasons similar to what you guys were talking about in terms of the way how it makes us question those around us and Carolyn to your point with the newspaper I watched it twice so the second time I, I really focused on all the various aspects of, of the newspaper because I, I liked how it gave us a history I guess of the tension in Mumbai and the amount of bombings and stuff but it also got me thinking about the stuff that we're seeing now, whenever there's like a bombing or a shooting and how quickly everyone goes to alienating others and being suspicious and fending for themselves, which is a theme we'll talk about a bit later. And I just thought it, it worked really well for this film. And one last thing I will say about the animation, it actually reminded me of some of the earlier works that Yung San Ho, who directed the feature film, made and i know it's it's slightly different style but watching this it reminded me of a film that he made called the fake which played at tiff a couple years ago i wasn't a huge fan of that film i found it a little too dreary likes to bathe in misery if, if you will but the way how the realistic kind of gritty animation and similar to here like you know i just i got tense just just watching this film and seeing expressions on the faces so i thought it was really well done Boy, for, uh, I guess, criticizing the previous filter for bathing in misery, that's, that's an, I'm gonna have some questions about the journey between that and Train to Busan, but, you know, we'll get there. I actually wanna build on two things that y'all said. First from Carolyn, when you were talking about the fake news angle, and then Courtney, when you were discussing how quickly events, particularly traumatic events or disaster events, can cause alienation within, you know, your circle or another another circle or just what we feel as though is a safe public space because here in the states we had the las vegas shooting at the country music festival or this country concert that was going on and what was fascinating to me as much as anything can be fascinating when we're dealing with a tragedy of this scope but we've all got to get some mental distance somehow but it was how quickly different conspiracies spread in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. Not even an hour or so had passed. But it was because so many people there didn't understand what was going on. There were rumors of multiple shooters. Some people thought that the shots were coming from inside the crowd, not from the hotel. And, you know, it wasn't until the subsequent investigation afterwards that they found the shooter in the hotel. But because of those initial reports, people have got their conspiracy. They've got their thing that they're hanging on to. And now that that information is disappearing, it fuels that desire for them to be right even more and you could really see that when the the newspaper gentleman was kind of starting to scribble furiously inside the newspaper just to see if he could get the subject to match at all i love that when he made the goatee on one of them and he 
X'd through it, he started looking at the other one. He's actively looking for a reason to suspect and fear this person who is really just fiddling around in his briefcase. That kind of brings us to the ending as well. Ultimately, it didn't really matter if there was a bomb or not. The general environment, the hostility that unfortunately news can breed into and and can help alleviate, but we really haven't been seeing as much of that recently, how that cycle is going to continue and it's going to begin fresh with a new nightmare. It doesn't matter if it's this one person or if he can find another story in another newspaper tomorrow that lets him feed into his paranoia a little more. Both fake news aspect and how quickly news can alienate people, I think that that has a lot of resonance with a lot of tragic events that are happening right now. One thing I will say that I I really enjoyed, and it's a brief moment, but it's essentially when his paranoia reaches its peak and he can't decide whether or not to get off the train or what. And the way how the film uses the light from a passing train to mimic an explosion, at least in his mind, I thought was unexpected, but also very, very well done. Yeah, I love that too. Um, Carolyn, any final thoughts or specific things you liked about this one? You know, the point that you brought up about the two pictures in the newspaper kind of struck me as maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's like we're all the same people and it's just that we're spoon-fed that paranoia and then as you're saying from experience so you you make something up you want to see that bad guy sitting there but the fact that he kind of had to make it he had to draw the goatee on that person's face you know we're all basically in the same boat but sometimes you just to comfort yourself or to feed that paranoia you want to make it so it's very. It was very powerful for such a short film. Short, short. <laughs> yeah, I think just, just the economy of it. I was amazed at how quickly it just established its setting and then put its conflict into motion and then set up all these ideas of internal, external conflicts. And Courtney, that was a really good point about the lighting aspect because I, I remember catching that in my notes, but then just getting caught up in the overall emotion of it ended up... <laughs> Not erasing it from my brain, obviously it was sitting there in my subconscious, but just the amount of things that short films like this can make you feel or think when they're this effective. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm I'm really happy we do focus on short films. It packs a lot of emotion in, what, three minutes? A little, little shy of four minutes, and I thought, yeah, very succinct, but man, it gets its point across. And while we're on the subject of intense emotions and a bit of paranoia and trains, we're going to take a break to change some reels, and then we will be back for our feature film, Train to Busan. Welcome back, everyone. Our reels are changed, and we are ready to talk about today's feature film, Train to Busan. It's a 2016 South Korean flick directed by Yang Sang-ho, and it's a charming, heartwarming story of Seok-woo, an overworked man who is way too focused on his business ventures 
seeking to reconnect with his daughter after his divorce. As a way of reconnecting, Xiaokwu decides to take his daughter, Su An, on a trip to meet Xiaokwu's ex-wife and Suan's mother. Along the way, they're going to learn a little something about themselves, engage in the lives of strangers on a train, and some zombie-esque apocalypse happens that takes any hope love or happiness out of their lives. So if you're expecting Salisbury Hill to play, it's not going to. Courtney, why did you put us on this train? This is a film that I've heard a lot about for almost a year, and our lovely guest this week has been telling me for the longest time I need to see Train to Busan, so I decided this would be the perfect time to uh, sit down with it, and I'm glad she hassled me about it because I thought this film was awesome. The heartwarming aspects do do hit you, I'm not going to lie, I did get a little, little choked up towards the end, but man, oh man, I'm not a big zombie movie fan, even though I picked a film, a short film about a zombie kangaroo, but this one, I... I was glad I watched, and I will watch many times going forward because there's an energy to this film that worked for me. I loved how a lot of the stuff happens on the train, and when they find ways to get people off the train, it didn't feel contrived. And even how they got them back on the train and somewhat separated at times, like I thought, I thought it all worked. And considering that, as I mentioned before, I've, I've seen two of Yoon Sang-ho's previous films. One was an animated film called The Fake, which was about a convict, if I remember correctly, who returns home to his village. And he's pretty much a horrible husband, and I think a pretty bad father, if I remember correctly. And he also takes on this whole religious fanatic cult that has popped up in his community. And as I said, a very depressing animated film. Wasn't a huge fan of it. But I did like, was it Soul Station, which I believe is a loose precursor to this one. But for me, this film is the peak of the three that I've seen. And I highly recommend that people check this one out. And I can't say enough about it. I actually saw it at uh, Toronto After Dark last year. It really is quite a standout film. And I actually did see Soul Station after Train to Busan. I believe it was released after. It is like a, a loose prequel. It's just such a different feel, but there is one kind of binding factor or character that I guess I'll get into a little bit later. It's a fantastic film, and it really does hook you because you think it's like this family melodrama. As soon as the train gets going, you're in the thick of things. So I really like how it changes tone, but it's not a detriment to the film. It changes tone, and then you're just going like a runaway train, basically, <laughs> literally. <laughs> The word I would easily use to describe this is propulsive as all get out. Um, yeah. Because there are the little hints that something's wrong at the very beginning. With, like with the emergency vehicles cutting off Siakwu as he is driving his daughter to the train and the steadily increasing images of unrest in the background. That was really powerful for me because one of my concerns, and, and this can even tie back into the paranoia and suspicion after this Las Vegas shooting, is how much of these tragedies or how much of these outbreaks or like with what's happening with Puerto Rico or any of the other islands that have been hit so badly by this hurricane is this distancing effect that we're able to compartmentalize our empathy in a way so long as it's in a wreck 
rectangle and far away so that we can say, oh, well, it's not here, and oh, man, that's such a shame. Well, maybe I'll donate to their GoFundMe if they're in trouble or whatever. There's an ambivalence about all the characters, with the exception of the daughter, Suan, that is terrifyingly present in today's society. The way that Train to Busan turns that on its head again and again particularly in the case of the two sisters who are traveling together. One of them, Jung Gil, she has a horrifying line of dialogue at the beginning when she is talking about what she thinks are riots on the TV and what we eventually learn is, you know, one of the zombie breakouts. And she says that people nowadays, they'll riot over anything. And in my day, we would take them in for re-education. And the rest of Train to Busan is like that in the extreme. What happens with Jung Gil eventually and the kind of re-education that she chooses it chilled me it absolutely chilled me like in that moment i honestly felt that she was justified but at the beginning this idea that people should be taken in for re-education instead of being allowed to vent their frustrations which is what jung gil thought they were doing at the beginning philosophically that's chilling there's so much else in this that kept me nervous and tearful amongst other things but just how everyone has this ambivalence about them to violence so long as it's happening somewhere else that's one thing that struck me early on and especially with the father so when the chaos starts to happen on the train and the daughter still wants to be nice especially to the older women the father takes her aside and basically says in times of crisis it's okay to be selfish and not be considerate to others you know it's like well actually no in times of crisis that's when you really need to be considerate of others and he kind of has that thought process for a good portion of the film and then he starts to see the error of his ways whereas you have the businessman i think it was it was yan suk who at first we need to get to a place where it's safe and then you realize how ruthless he is he's the personification of i'm out for myself even using other people as bait if you will in the later parts to do everything he can to get away and it's one of those things where you laugh at the craziness of it all but then you stop and think you're like you know if this was to happen not even a zombie outbreak but just any type of tragic situation there's going to be a ton of people like this businessman that will sacrifice others just to save themselves it's a really chilling aspect to the film. And I think one of the things I don't normally like about zombie films is they are, by their nature, are often allegories for something bigger. But I find a lot of them nowadays are more interested in, hey, let's have a zombie pop out of the cabinet or the backseat of this car that no one checked before they got in. Whereas this film puts the message and I think the human interactions at the forefront so when the stuff with the zombies happens which i think is fantastic especially when they're compressed on a window and falling from the sky it's still very much a character study first and for me a zombie movie second the one character that really stuck out for me was the homeless man. It's funny because he kind of slips in there and he's hiding in the bathroom and you think he's a zombie at one point, but he's not. There's one scene where they're crawling along the baggage holders on top of the seats when they're trying to bypass the zombies. They distract the zombies enough to get down and no one helps the homeless guy. He was quite a poignant character for me because of Soul Station, which is the animated 
prequel, the zombie outbreak starts with the homeless people and they're basically ignored for a good part of the film. That carries over into Train to Busan where he's not considered until he actually does help Suan and uh, I believe, I can't remember the pregnant character's name. He helps them escape. He's self-sacrificing. He's kind of trying to get by but he also does have some humanity left in him as opposed to the so-called normal members of society. So I thought that was really quite moving. Yeah, and it kind of ties back to something that you had said, Courtney, about Siakwu having a change of heart. One of the things that makes this kind of a pessimistic movie for me, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, even if I'm really aggressive about it sometimes, but Siakwu's change of heart doesn't really come until he's on the other end of the ostracization because i would say that the, the biggest change of heart comes after he the young baseball player uh young guk and maybe my favorite character at least from an entertainment standpoint Senghua, the tough working class guy who is really smart and handy and adapts himself to the situation excellently. But after the CEO, Yun Suk, has tied up the entrance, he's not even allowing other people to feel hope that it is possible to beat back these people. And there is a larger allegorical point there where it ends up being revealed eventually that Xiaokwu, his business deals in these chemicals that we see like in a news story early on has resulted in a bunch of fish mysteriously dying, which oddly enough comes after we watch a deer reassemble itself in the middle of the road, which was one chilling introduction. I'm so used to seeing zombies pop up in a malformed or hampered state, but seeing it basically restore its elf to full strength, you know, that set it up right up front that we were not dealing with garden variety zombies. Going back to Syaku's change of heart, it feels like even to the end, it still feels selfish. He does do some things to sacrifice himself, especially at the very end. But his character also reminds me that there is a sort of necessary pragmatism to survive in that kind of scenario. I think that Syakwu's approach eventually becomes more community-oriented, seeing how what one person can do to affect everyone else. But I also like that Train to Busan never loses that pragmatic sight, that we can only help so many people. And that's pessimistic to a T, but there's also something a bit realistic about it. I think that Carolyn really hit it well when discussing the homeless man, who is never given a name. He's just the homeless man, uh, played by uh, Choi Gui-ha. So there is an element of pragmatism, but then we also see how just a little bit of empathy along the way would have meant so many more people surviving. I agree with you in terms of if they had more empathy, a lot of these characters, then we would have seen a lot more people survive the craziness. But in terms of the father's selfishness, I really think he does get a change of heart when they first um, disembark off the train. And he's, again, in his selfish ways, trying to take his daughter because he got a hot tip on a safe place to go. But when 
he realizes that they've all made an error getting off the train and he nearly loses his life and he sees others kind of the homeless man in particular risking his life for him i think that's when you really start to see the change because then he's he's trying to help the other people like cordon off the zombies and doing what he can to really get back to his daughter and I don't know. I felt like he his chance comes a, a little bit earlier than I think what you're giving credit for. But I completely agree with everything else you were saying. And with the homeless man, I know we've been talking a lot of serious aspects, but the homeless man had one of the best comedic moments in the film when he and the father are trapped in that compartment. They try to sneak out. But of course, the homeless guy steps on the one pop can that <laughs> happens to be in the entire train. Yes. It's one of those oh crap moments, but it works so well in terms of breaking the tension with a bit of humor while still ratcheting up the tension because you're like, oh my gosh, you know, how are you guys going to get out of this now? So that's one thing I really liked about this film. It keeps a sense of humor while still tackling a lot of serious issues and provides a good sense of chill throughout as well. I found the humor was really well done, especially with Hang Hua. I felt like he was kind of the Bruce Willis type, you know, <laughs> character. And like he kind of got things done and he was incredible. I would have loved to have seen a whole film with him. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> and he was, just he was his my day favorite. to day life. The sacrifice that he does throughout the entire thing and especially when he calls the father out for nearly leaving him for dead just from the opening moments all the way through i thought he was a really entertaining character he was my personal favorite just because he was such a likable character but also intuitive enough to figure out what needs to be done how to arm up with what supplies you had you know kind of like the average joe macgyver if you will <laughs> i love that i love that both bruce willis but also average joe macgyver <laughs> that's great and yeah saint his humor it's so dry, but it's perfect. His introduction when Suan is trying to go to the bathroom, he comes off a little menacing at first. I didn't like the way that he grabbed Suan's arm. And then when he said there's pissing for two in there, that also made my eyebrow raise. And then when you see that he's looking after his pregnant wife, it becomes retroactively funny, even if the menace, like, again, didn't like the way he grabbed Suan's arm, even if Overall, he was just amazing, pragmatic, dry, funny, resourceful, all that good stuff. I felt like with all his toughness, I really liked the relationship he had with his wife. It was very tender. And even though she would, she would call him like an idiot or shut up, she was pretty harsh with him. There was this tenderness between them that was really quite charming. Even though we don't get um, a lot with her, I thought his wife added a interesting layer to it and having her character there it also helps to soften the two older sisters she's a good transition for them because for a good portion of the the film the sisters are kind of one note and then as you get to the stuff towards the end then you start to see a little more dimensions of them and if you think about it the film's really juggling like what six or seven characters a few bad ones and a few good ones and i thought it did a good job like when it went back to focusing on the baseball player and his girlfriend i was invested in their story you know i was invested in the sister's story even though you're only getting brief moments of them and i do like the fact that you've got the baseball guy who has to go through the whole compartment with of course the baseball players instead of it just being a straight out crazy swinging for the whole fences type of scene you really see him conflicted through a lot of that he still sees them as his pals and his buddies and i thought those little moments did a lot to elevate this film 
It's funny that you say that because, you know, when I was watching the movie for like, I think this is like the third time I've I've seen it. I've seen people say, oh, it's like Snowpiercer with zombies. But it really made me think back to those old school disaster movies like The Towering Inferno or The Poseidon Adventure, where you have these little microcosms and like these little relationships and you kind of bounce back between Shelley Winters and her arguing with her husband and trying to like, I believe it was in the Poseidon adventure where she has to basically swim through this submerged room. And there's some comedy there. That's what it really made me think of, like those disaster movies from the 70s. Something you said there, I actually rolled my eyes at because I can anticipate not not what you said specifically, but what was said to you. So the story, that you, the brief story, when you said that people were describing it like Snowpiercer, they're not similar. I mean, they both take no. place on trains, but we might as well say that Strangers on a Train is just like Snowpiercer, if we're going to do that. Exactly. And I, I want to build on an idea that you had had earlier because i'm really latching on to this news as an organism that is infecting people because what's interesting about train to busan is is again it does start with the disaster with this infection just being on tv you know it's something that they can keep their distance from but the zombies in this they're fascinating they're not the typical kind of consumption zombies like where they will sit and gnaw on a corpse and consume it unless something distracts them so that person can change into a zombie like a lot of zombie movies and a lot of zombie narratives the zombies would be perfectly content just eating this corpse until these idiot humans show up and start messing around or trying to kind of maneuver around in their environment and so forth here they all actively seek out infection first. They don't sit and eat. They don't consume because the infection spreads so quickly that once they are infected, they're completely ignored by the rest of the horde. That leads to some terrifying, if hilarious, visual moments, like when Seokwu, Suan, and uh, Seong Kyung are trying to get away at the end, and there's so many of these infected coming after them, but then they trip themselves up because there are so many of them. It's this grotesque joke of all of these infected, violent things, unable to do what they want because they are too many of them. Going to what you had said about fake news and kind of the spreading of media, it almost seems like that's what happens here if we take it kind of like a like a broadly allegorical thing. It doesn't matter if they're consuming. It doesn't matter if they're state. It, it, they will constantly reform themselves. Once you're infected, you are one of them. What you see on the TV comes to life. And once it's affected one person without empathy and without really trying to sit and understand other people's points of view and how they are struggling, someone in your crew is going to get infected and then it's going to spread. So kind of seeing it almost like as a media virus that's been given life. Your thoughts triggered that in my brain. I am known for sometimes maybe stretching my interpretations, but that leap from media to reality and considering what we're wrestling with today, it all just fits for me. So kind of curious what you think. No, I think that actually works because if you think about it, it's, it's essentially big business that started the whole thing as we discover. If you're looking at it from 
the media aspect and how we consume things and the, the tribal nature of social media now it, it reminds me towards the end when all the zombies are essentially creating this chain link fence that's hanging on to the train and they just start climbing over each other more and more and more and more to the point where you build up and it's almost like they've got this dirty thing that a zombie could literally just get up and start running on it and that's essentially what a lot of social media is now. People jump on something, they jump on an idea, the media picks it up because they grab a lot of their news now from Twitter and whatever else, and they run with a particular narrative until everything in this path has kind of been destroyed and then realize, oh, well, we're just going to jump to something else and, and not think about it. And that's a very interesting aspect. I, was, I hadn't originally thought of that when watching the film. I hadn't thought of that whole media take, but it is an interesting approach. I think that's a really great way of seeing it. And I hadn't thought about it either. I was thinking more of the zombies being like a great equalizer in terms of social standing and status. But I can really see how that virus of fake news, it's a really good way of describing the zombies. Absolutely. And I would even jump in and say, if you think about towards the end, when certain characters are in a tunnel and people can't verify whether or not they're living dead or whatnot. And the first instinct is, well, we're not sure, so let's just kill it. Not waiting for verification because it may put us in jeopardy and break that barrier that we love to live comfortably. So, as you said earlier, Andrew, when it's happening to someone else, it's fine to comment, say, oh, they should be reformed. But the minute it's happening to your own sister, then things change completely, which I'm definitely going to consider the next time I watch it. One thing I do want to say, though, that I really enjoyed about this film, speaking of tunnels, is I love the way how they use darkness to kind of sedate the zombies because a lot of times it's like what they're looking for brains or they sense movement but for this particular one where they can't see in the dark and i love that because you're on a train you got to figure out new ways to get these people around and one thing that happens is trains go through a lot of tunnels and i thought that was a very interesting aspect and i like the fact that they space out the amount of tunnels that the train encounter so it still increases the stakes as the film was going so i don't know i just wanted to know what you guys thought about that particular trait for the film well it's kind of hit my media virus thing perfectly now that i think about it because think back to one of the first environmental victories that they have over these infected people you know you go into a tunnel everything's dark and what is it that draws them it's someone's cell phone ring it's this this allure of technology that draws all of them into the area so that they can flee. And it's this literal cutting off from the rest of society. Try and use your cell phone in an elevator or in a tunnel or try and get good reception inside one of those things. You know, you're cut off from the source. The tunnels themselves, of course, you know, natural part of train life, all that good stuff. But now that my brain has clung so tightly onto this media virus aspect, that's when the source would be gone. They wouldn't have any idea of who's infected and who's not until the cell phone goes off. So I like that as a tension tool structurally, but then the implications selfishly, you know, what I've been thinking about, I like the implications there too. 
No, I think that actually I was thinking that too, you know, when you lose your signal, then you've lost touch. So that virus has kind of lost touch with the general populace. So no, I think that's a great observation for sure. My last thought on this particular film was the one little quarrel I had with it was speaking of technology, who was magically, I guess, safe in certain areas because the father calls his business partner and that guy seems to have a lot of information seems to be in a somewhat safe space but then you're never quite sure if he is truly safe and the way how everything was spreading and the fact that most of the places they hit was so desolate i kept wondering like well where is this guy located how is it that in theory he would be in the same city they just came from and as we've seen everything else there seems to be now zombified so how is this guy still around and i mean it's it's a minor flaw but that was kind of gnawing at my brain like you know how are they getting information from certain people when in theory where you should be should be eradicated but it's a movie not supposed to think too deep into it one point that struck me going back to soul station and Comparing it to Train to Busan, father-daughter relationships, they're basically completely opposite. So Seok Wu is a distant father. It's an annoyance for him to take his daughter to go see her mother. And then he slowly warms up and he realizes how much he's missed with her. And, you know, that real father-daughter relationship comes to light. Whereas in Soul Station, the main character, she's not being treated very well by her boyfriend. He's kind of pimping her out. Her father calls the boyfriend and says, you know, he wants to know where she is. So they both go on this trek to find her amidst this zombie apocalypse. But I won't spoil it for you. Definitely a different relationship. <laughs> Let's just say. Well, I, I want to build on that mother point you made there, Carolyn. But first of all, Courtney, this is changing reels. We overthink movies all the time. <laughs> very true. Very true. <laughs> and guess just listener for, for my personal philosophy, there is no such thing as overthinking you may be stretching on an interpretation but i will always hear you out especially if you're gonna listen to me this long but carolyn going back to what you were saying about the mother relationship specifically that's something i caught throughout a lot of train to busan because at the very end young suck who thinks that he has gotten away after he throws that poor conductor into the way of the infected people coming after them. And one of the first things that he asks for is his mom, that he wants to see his mother, that he tells Sokwu and the, the remaining survivors where she lives, and this idea that returning to mom is going to make it all okay honestly i don't have a solid read on that as of yet my brain has apparently been affected with the media virus just like the other people in this movie but that is a motif that i picked up on and that yonsuk's last words were basically i want my mommy so i'm just wondering if that it like stirs anything else up in you or if there's anything you would want to build on there it works with Suan wanting to go see her mother. I feel like if there's some kind of weird parallel. And then also Seok Wu's mother was looking after his daughter. So there is this interesting mother parallel thing going on there. And then also the pregnant wife. But I feel like the nasty businessman, Yan Suk, he's basically like, again, the polar opposite to a sweet little girl wanting, just wanting to go visit her mother. 
there's some polarities happening. I completely agree. And Courtney, I know that uh, you said you had kind of tapped out with your last point, but before we conclude, something I'm curious about from each of you. This movie is jam-packed with images and moments that made my skin explode into goosebumps and also moments that got me really teary-eyed if you were going to pitch one moment from this as your favorite as, as what you feel as though kind of defines it but gives it that tingling effect what would it be hmm that is a heavy question oh, ain't it it is i got it I got a little touched by the ending, being a parent myself, but I don't know. When I think back to this film, there's like three moments that immediately pop in my head. And one's towards the end when they're trapped underneath the train cars as the zombies are pressed on the glass. The scene where the homeless man sacrifices himself for the greater good. The tension in that, and especially with the glass cracking, but I think it's when they get off at the station the father gets separated from his daughter just as all hell is breaking loose seeing how sang ha comes in and i guess his wife grabs the child and seeing the slew of people going down the steps only to realize that the military isn't quite the military that hit me because i take the train to work every day i picture myself at union station which is like our one of our big train stations in toronto and a lot of this film i was thinking man if a zombie outbreak ever happened on my way to work chances of me surviving are slim just in terms of the design of the train but even thinking something like that how we're essentially like zombies every day once you get off the train you just see a slew of people kind of shuffling at a particular speed and to be in a situation where you think that you're getting a bit of relief only realize that it's 10 times worse than what you came from i think for me that whole train station sequence is the part that i would talk about in terms of being memorable but also getting somewhat choked up about it's so funny you say that um courtney because if you need a plan just call me because I'm, my name is actually Carolyn. Worst case scenario, Morissette. So <laughs> I have a zombie plan. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally nuts. But anyway, aside from that, for me, there are two moments. The first moment was when the train's pulling out of the station and Suan's looking out the window as someone attacks one of the train attendants. And her father is completely oblivious. He's just kind of looking or looking at his phone. And she's looking at him like, did you just see that? That was one of the moments for me. Because, again, the same with you, Courtney. is like, you know, I take this, the subway every day. You see some, some weird stuff going on. And as you're pulling out, it's kind of like the sense of helplessness because you're on this train and you're being pulled away. And this something is happening. You're not really sure what's going on. So that's number one for me. And then my absolutely favorite part of this movie was when they're running to catch that other train and the zombies are piling up on each other and they create this kind of mass of zombies behind that train hanging on. The first time I saw it in the, the theater, I was like, this is insane. I actually got chills from that. And that's another sense of helplessness. I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> that is not a situation <laughs> I want to be in. And that I'm not sure I have a plan, but I was thinking... I wonder if the weight of the zombies is going to slow the train down. I was thinking technically, and then I thought, okay, so what, do you climb on top of the train? Again, worst case scenario, Carolyn was trying to work a plan out of that. But <laughs> So those were the two moments for me. And the director had you covered there as far as whether the train was slowing down or not, because when it cut to that <laughs> quick, in quick insert shot of the wheels grinding, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess for me, since none of us can narrow it down to one with good reason, this movie's excellent. My number two is definitely Sanghua's sacrifice. I love the way that he's presented throughout this, as we've mentioned, but also he has this seemingly ridiculous superhuman strength, and I love it when movies like this present working class folks with uber powers. There's one amazing shot where he <laughs> suplexes a zombie or the infected into the roof of the train. And I love that. But the image of Sanghua saying, stay back, baby, using one of the infected as a wall against the rest of them. And it's one of those lines that is so beautifully nuanced. He's trying to warn his wife, first of all, but he already sees his daughter, the stay back baby. Some folks like being called baby when they're in a romantic relationship, some don't. We don't get enough of them to make one way or the other as far as a conclusion there, but those first two words, stay back for the wife and then baby for both the wife and their daughter, reminding her that she's got more to live for than Senghua which was sad. The number one for me was Kim Suan's performance at the very end. She murdered my heart. <laughs> I, I've seen some, she does an amazing job, and I, I think recently we've hit on a good vein of child performances, but the way that she goes from feeling alienation to trying getting a bit of warmth wherever she can, and even she gets her own dry humor moment when Xiaokuo comes in with her gift and it's another Nintendo Wii, but her begging and pleading at the very end unable to accept the reality of what's going to happen with her father, which is something that all kids eventually have to learn about with their parents, you know, regardless of whether there is a infected media zombie thing or not. That's just how time works. So this is a hell of a movie. And Carolyn, thank you for both joining us and for pushing Courtney to pick that this week. <laughs> oh, it was my pleasure. I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed it. It was a great discussion. So Carolyn, before we wrap up our end on the official wrap up, I guess, do you have any upcoming reviews? I know you mentioned the film festival. Um, what was it? Blood in the Snow? Yeah. So Blood in the Snow Canadian Film Festival. So that's coming up November 23rd to the 26th. We're also going to be announcing our lineup at Hororama, and that's in Toronto, and that's November 4th and 5th. So if you're in the Toronto area, come on down, because Hororama is always a good time. I also write for Courtney as well at cinemaaccess.com. I have my own blog, Rosemary's Pixie, where I do reviews and general commentary on horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. And uh, there's a kickoff tomorrow night. I'm going to be going to Toronto After Dark as well, so... Woo! <laughs> Excited. Horror, it's my month. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy that you joined us and also happy to hear you so excited about this kind of genre awesomeness because passion's something that we need more of in this world. So, Courtney, where can folks reach you? You can reach me at our Twitter account, at ChangingReelsAC, or they can reach me personally on Twitter, at SmallMind. And I monitor our Gmail account, changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at CantStopDrew. Make sure you visit the page CantStopTheMovies.com. Again, if you want to become a patron, there's already goodies waiting for you, and they help keep my household fed. This has been an excellent discussion, and 
and I can't wait to push Train to Busan on others like Carolyn did with Courtney and now you both have done with me. Remember everyone, you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. Thank you.